Let, I'm going to pause before we, before we get into, into the text for this morning. We are going to be in Acts 9. But let me just tell you a little bit about sort of our preaching methodology. Uh, we don't do a whole lot of topical sermons here. Um, topical sermons are good every now and then, but they, they can be a little bit fraught. Um, it's easy to make Scripture a, a wax nose of sort and sort of force it to say something that it's not really saying or the main point. We typically do expositional preaching here. And here's kind of the idea. You read the text, make observations. You ask, what was the meaning for the original audience? Once you get that, you infer a theological principle, a timeless principle that applies to everyone, no matter what culture, no matter what, no matter what time. All right? And then you apply it. And that's kind of sort of, and so you walk through. And so, like, my typical methodology is text, observation, meaning, principle, eternal principle, theological principle, application. Text, observation, meaning, principle, application. And I keep doing that, and then I tie all the principles together. Well, I was going through this sermon to just check yesterday, and I was like, you know what? The theological principles I've pulled from the text actually... If you're just looking at Acts, I'm not sure how well they can actually be defended. So I've done something that's more, I would call, systematic expositional. The principles I've pulled out, um, they're, yeah, maybe they're in the text, but they're actually supported from looking at passages beyond Acts. So, yeah. (laughs) So that's good. It's all right. It's good. So I didn't want to... A line of 20 of you coming up and saying, ah, how did you get that from Acts? I got it from the whole of Scripture, all right? I am a systematician, so it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to get out of me. Um, conversations, confrontation, conversions. You'll see why this title in a little bit. But um, I went, I was a part of a a large college young adult ministry in Akron, Ohio. I don't even know why I come up here. Thank, thank you! Cuyahoga Falls even! Yeah! Dave Snyder, also from Cuyahoga Falls. There's three of us. We're taking over. I have to say, that's the nearest uh, larger city. But I was part of this thing called Campus Focus. In fact, that's where I met Megan. Yeah, woo! From Columbus, Ohio. No, I'll I'll leave you go. But uh, it it was it had three hundred, three hundred and fifty students. It was it was pretty awesome, pretty energetic. And every now and then they would have one or two students come and give testimonies. And these testimonies were just phenomenal. They would it seemed more often than not they would pick people to come up and speak, who had lived a long life of drugs, sex, drinking, all sorts of illegal things. The rap sheet for these people was rather long and grand. And so you would focus on a few things. One, the graciousness of our Lord, amen. But also, 
I would focus on the seeming, the seeming improbability of that person coming to Christ. Like, how, how can you be doing all that and coming to Christ? Wow, he is gracious. In the end, they seemed a little bit more special to me. Their conversions, their conversions, their bowing of the knee, seemed a little bit more miraculous and special than mine. In fact, sometimes I would sit there and think, hmm, I wish I would have sinned all the greater. So I could be one of those special conversions too. Hmm. Because I was pretty, I was pretty much an innocuous guy. You know, I was... I obeyed, you know, I was five miles over the speed limit, regular, you know, nothing, nothing too, you know. I was, a, I was a, good, a good guy. I didn't get into a lot of things. You know, I, I really wouldn't call myself a slave to anything in particular. So, but here's the thing. We were all wrong. All of our conversions are amazingly radical and miraculous. And, that, and that's why this story, why, why, why this little account of the testimonies, is because Paul's story sticks out. It is unusual. There's clear intervention by God. But we can be misled by his conversion story if we are not careful. So turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 9. We're going to go from 1 to 19a, and then next week we'll pick up and go from 19b to 31. But I'm going to read the passage. Not, I'm not going to read it multiple times like I normally do today, but... All right. I hear pages turning. Now I think some of you are messing with me. <laughs> How long will I wait? Hmm. <sighs> Even the worship leader's messing with me. It's because I'm from Ohio. All right. Starting at verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days... He was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias! And he said, Here I am, Lord. 
And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. So here are the three questions that are going to guide us through the sermon for this morning, through the text. First question, why was Saul's conversion so violent? It sort of feels like Saul got a beat down, old-fashioned style, from Jesus on the road to Damascus. Right? I mean, he's blind. Second, Why would God choose Paul, of all people, and bring him in when he did? Like, why Paul? Why then? And then lastly, why is Ananias used? I mean, Jesus went this far. Why doesn't he just appear to him and remove the scales from his eyes? So, let's, let's look at the first question. Why was Saul's conversion so violent? So, let's just look, think about the passage for a moment. Let's get some of the details out. So, first of all, there's a trip. Saul is going to Damascus. Um, if you were to look on a map, Damascus is, is like north-northwest of Jerusalem. It's about 135 miles from Jerusalem. It's a large and prosperous city in the day. Why is he going to Damascus of all places? I'm not sure. I don't know. These traveling companions with them, they are not identified. Uh, we, don't, we, do, we do not need to assume that they were doing the same thing that Saul was doing. Uh, just back in the day, traveling alone was dangerous. So they could just be all going to Damascus and... You know, they, they, they decided to travel together. Now, the text said he was breathing threats and murder. He was breathing murder. So, there's no indication that, Paul, that Saul is actually murdering anyone himself. But he is fine with the outcome. He is fine with, he looked at Stephen Stoning with approval. He is willing to drag back Christians to Jerusalem, and if they die, they die. He wants to wreck the church. And he has letters that he can actually have people from the way arrested and brought back to Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting, 
you know, who would actually accept these letters? And that is, that is one contention in, in, in the studies that I've done on this passage is there is evidence such letters were written outside a particular city's jurisdiction, but we don't know how, how seriously other officials would take them. Uh, maybe the folks of the synagogue would. Would the governments intervene? Who knows? But he does have these letters, and he does have an intent. And then the text also mentions the way. This is the name they give to the early church, the early Christians. It undoubtedly comes, stems from Christ's statement in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So let me do a little excursus on the way. So I'm going to do a little sermonette just on the way real quick, and then we'll get back to the text. All right? All right? Okay. Ohio. I'm just kidding. Uh, So the early Christians were called the way because Jesus is the only way. But many professed Christians today actually think he is the main or he is the most straightforward way, but not necessarily the only way. And that's, that is called inclusivism, and we'll get, we'll get back to that. But to believe that is to undercut the very namesake of the reborn church, the way. I am the way and the truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the way to eternal life is to repent of your sins for which Christ died and and put your trust in him for this life and the next. And when you do that, God declares you to have the righteousness of Christ. And and that's salvation. That's simply said. You will be forgiven and the righteousness of Christ will be declared as belonging to you. Romans 10, starting at verse 14. You don't have to turn to it. I'm going to read it for you. Paul says this. Saul, who, who we later start calling Paul. Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is, our, this is one of our calls to missions. Local missions, global missions. We have a great concern for that. We have to get the word out. Every major document coming out of the Protestant Reformation, um, and if you, if you want to learn more about the Reformation, come see me afterwards. I, I've done a little reading in it. Denied inclusivism. It's... Every major document out of the Reformation denied inclusivism. The idea that, yes, Christianity is the right religion, is the correct religion, but 
the Holy Spirit might work through the truths that are found in other religions or through a Holy Spirit-enabled natural reason to come to Christ. In other words, like uh, people who are Christians and don't even know they're Christians, right? It's, It's pretty popular out there. But every major document out of the Protestant Reformation denies that, and that's called inclusivism. Inclusivism says that Jesus Christ is the way, is the main way, but the Holy Spirit might work through other means or through other sources of information to bring people to him. Now, I would say it's possible for him to do it, but there is no evidence and no biblical evidence that he does that. So, for those who disagree, uh, you repent of your ways, or you just recognize that you have parted ways from the Protestant uh, Reformation tradition. All right, back to the text, okay? So, all of a sudden, Jesus Christ appears to Paul. Wouldn't it have been good to have like a, a skit? A skit of this would have been good. Get some magnesium light up there that really, like, you can't look at. It would have been great. The others hear his voice, but they don't see what Paul sees. It is Jesus, and he describes himself as the one whom you are persecuting. When you are being persecuted for your faith, Jesus is being persecuted. God is being persecuted. And that's kind of great comfort because you've got really great company there. And this is perhaps where Paul gets that body imagery that he uses differently in Ephesians 4. Because if you look at Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12, he both uses the body imagery, but they're both, he both uses them differently. But that's perhaps where he gets this body imagery back then. Paul, or Saul, Why are you persecuting me? You know, if you stomp on my foot, I'm not like, hey, you hurt my foot. No, you hurt me. That's what what, uh, Jesus is saying. Thus, when you are being attacked for Jesus, he is also being attacked. And in the text, Paul is blinded and exposed as powerless against the one he is attempting to attack. I don't know at which point exactly he is saved, and it's just not clear from the text. I I don't know at what point he actually bowed the knee. But back to the question, though. Why is the conversion so violent? My indirect answer is Paul's conversion may be observationally dramatic, but it is not less violent than any other conversions. I'm going to read from Ezekiel 36, starting at verse 26. Ezekiel writes, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. So let me read that again. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. 
And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is not a passage that points to mutual agreement or compromise. A conqueror stands over your slain body, plunges his hand into your chest, pulls out a heart of stone, and takes a beating heart, a heart of flesh, and plunges into your chest. And you are reborn. It is then and only then that you become repentant and have true faith. That is what goes on in any conversion. A divine conquering of your old self. Now, I was, I, I still had some childhood left of me in the 90s. Some of you may have as well. And some of you also may have been able to watch, play video games. Remember Mortal Kombat? And this is gruesome. It's a lovely game, I know, but... Like, finish him! Yes! Finish him! And if you do certain, if you do certain movements, if you do surf, certain movements, like, I always felt bad, so I just went over and, like, pushed the guy over. But, like, my brother, he would do these things, and you would, like... Like, you rip out his beating heart. Lovely, right? 90s. The 90s. We don't do stuff like that. We go over now and console him. You did a good job. But now it's like immortal combat. I shouldn't go where I'm going. But I think you all can infer where I'm going, though. Heart is yanked out, but another one is put in. Regenerate him. <laughs> and that's when the, the FHBC line of Christian video games began. <laughs> July 9th, 2023. It's going to be hard to recover after that. But this is not even an unconditional surrender. I mean, again, it's a beat down. Dying to self, repenting of sins, etc., and every elect person's battle looks different. And if, if, you're, if you're triggered by the word elect, I assure you, you can't get away from this idea in Scripture. Um, even, even Jacob Arminius, where we get the term Arminian, and if you're familiar with me, even he acknowledged you can't get, a, get rid of election. It's in Scripture. And if you, if you want more, to know more about that, and how Arminians believe in election as well, I love to talk about that stuff. You'll glaze over and I'll still be smiling and talking to you. <laughs> I lose all social cues when I start talking theology. Where am I? Oh, yeah. But with some of the elect, the master swordsman tussles repeatedly, but kills only later. He could pop up anywhere. Weddings. Funerals. Even Fox News. That was kind of a joke, but he doesn't really show up at NPR and listen. With some of the non-elect, some of of the non-elect, he does tussle, 
but he never goes in for the kill. I, I don't know why that is. With some of, the le- some of the elect, he kills as soon as he meets them. In my experience, that's really rare. That's really rare. We all have a different story when the great swordsman went in for the final kill and raised us up as a part of the kingdom. We don't want him. It's only after he slayed us and made us a new creation that he wants us, that we want him. That is, it is not in our nature to surrender. It just isn't. He has to do our work on us so that we surrender. These walking dead, walking dead that we call humans, have to be struck not in the head, but they've got to be struck in the heart. How's that reference? It's violent imagery today. I'm sorry. But I'm not sorry, also. But here's the theological principle that I want to, to just to put forth. All conversion, conversions, not just Paul's, involve confrontation and conquering. So all conversions, not just Paul's, involve confrontation and conquering. Just as Craig said last, so here's my application. Just as Craig said last week, I'll say it again, God gave us a curriculum. This is what, Paul, this is what Craig said to us last week. God gave us curriculum. It's our job to witness. Anyone remember Craig saying that? He did. I got the notes. Each time you are a, faithless, a faithful witness, Christ's sword, Christ's sword comes from your mouth. Wounds of a friend, however, and you're going to receive a, a variety of reactions directed at the swordsman. Your main job, however, is to not stifle the thrust. Um, I recently became aware of how clear and simple we have to be. Okay? Yeah, this, this is actually, I, I'm, I'm a little ashamed of this story, but I think it'll be helpful to you. But just, just this, this year... Um, I'm at ball, we're warming up, and a longtime friend said, oh, you need to go to talk to so-and-so because he was telling people recently, I heard him talking to people and saying that, that you can only have eternal life if you believe in Jesus Christ. I was like, yeah. So we talked a little bit more, and I said, yeah, I told him, while I may have found the, the evangelists approach debatable. I couldn't agree, I couldn't disagree with the message. I asked him some follow-up questions, but self-critically I was disappointed that, huh, why wasn't he able to infer the gospel message from the many conversations I've had with him? And I think the lesson is that people do not infer well things from the conversations that, that you have with them that they don't know about. They don't know a whole, whole lot about this stuff. So I'm going to use this acronym that I learned from business classes. KISS. Keep it simple, 
sister. <laughs> See how wholesome this sermon is? <laughs> Keep it simple, sister. We all need to repent of our sins for which Jesus died and put our trust in him for this life and the next. Like, someone who I care deeply for did not know that I held that. And I had known this person for well over 10 years. But kiss. Keep it simple, sister. Kiss b would not have been good, right? Keep it simple, brother. And I'm not. Anyway. Let's move on. All right. The question, why Paul, why then? This is going to get deep. This part's going to get deep. We could be asking about the conditional versus unconditional election debate. We're not asking that. Most folks are probably thinking, why in the world would God pick Paul? Paul dragged people out of their churches. Paul dragged people out of their homes. No one has time for Paul. No one wants him. In, his, in their church, right? Like this guy, like do you know what he, do you know what happened to my cousin? Do you know what happened to my brother? It's that guy. And now he's a Christian. It's just a very odd choice. However, however, I imagine that Paul's conversion was hugely impactful for believers and unbelievers. For sober-minded believers, it shows the majesty and sovereignty of God. The very God that created Leviathan and Behemoth. He tames Saul and makes him a new creation. All our conversions are radical. And miraculous, as I said above. For the unbeliever, it makes them sit up and pay attention. What in the world? Saul? Saul's part of the way now? What? It puts some fear into them. Man, he's really smart. He was a good, he was a good Pharisee. Makes them question their worldview and beliefs, which are quite distorted. But you could also be asking the question, why then? Why did they pick Saul then? Why did God pick Saul then? Some might be more interested in that question. Why Saul at that moment? Like when you compare the amazing education of Saul, he sat under the feet of Gamaliel, a celebrated teacher at the time. Right? Compared to the original apostles. Like you got a bunch of fishermen. A tax man who's basically in cahoots with Rome. A zealot who hates Rome. And you got this ragtag bunch. None of them educated. You know, Luke's a... F anyway, um, not Luke, but, uh, you know, there is, there, is some, there is some education there, but not religious education. And they're the ones that originally, that Jesus hands the ball off to, he, he, he hands his ministry off to, and they are the ones that stand up to these religious, brilliant geniuses of the day. I mean, that's, that's amazing. 
you can't say that's just humans. You just, you can't. I mean, even the, even the apostles are so, they're so um, honest about how messed up and how silly and, and foolish they were. Like, and then they, they're the ones that start this great movement. But again, I, I think if you ask, you know, why didn't, why didn't Jesus get a Saul type from the beginning? Why didn't, like, fine, get your fisherman, get your taxman, get your physician, but get Gamaliel, bring him over. Right? But again, I think, I think God wanted to emphasize that his hand is clearly in this. So as, there is a similar answer to this. Why Paul at this moment? Similar to the original 12 being simple. For the believer, for the believer, having simple men at the outset also spoke to God's majesty and sovereignty. The one who created all the complicated things like mathematics and physics used simple men to stand up to the religious um, power wielders and geniuses of the day. The beginning of the church is miraculous and radical when you think about it. So why not, why not a Saul type from the beginning? Because it would have been tra- detracted from God's glory, perhaps. For the unbeliever, it makes them sit up and pay attention, puts fear in them, should make them question their world beliefs and, and uh, worldview. So in sum, in sum, on the one hand, in the Gospels, you have fishermen, taxmen, zealots, etc., simple folk, that Jesus has continue on the way. It's not until Acts that you have Saul come into the picture. This very well-educated gentleman, a Pharisee among Pharisees, who now joins their group. I would not have done the thing, I would not have planned to do things the way God did. But this is, the, this is why it's so clearly God's hand. It makes you stop and think. So, theological principle. All conversions, not just Paul's, involve confrontation and conquering, and you never can tell who, why, and when God has someone respond. You can never tell who, why, and when God has someone respond. Um, I have a, I live in a wonderful neighborhood, like, like many of you, and I just, I, we, we love our neighbors, and I'm trying to have meaningful relationships with them. I pray for them all, and you know, there's, there's a group of them uh, with which I, I talk theology, philosophy, politics. You know, we, oftentimes we disagree, and, but it, we enjoy it. And I remember starting to assume, oh man, maybe some of the first believers will be from this group. I just sort of assumed it. Right? Like, I've even had opportunities to straight up deliver, like, I mean, I, I remember one time I got a softball pitch. I mean, it was like, 
oh man, I got it. Like, it would have been sinful for me not to just crank at this thing. Because someone asked me, like, how did I get over my anxiety of the fear of death? And I was like, oh my gosh, are you, like, I think I was stunned for a moment. Like, did you really just, that, that was so easy. And then I, you know, shared the gospel. But who knows? We are to spread the word indiscriminately. Maybe people who they're just hearing from the sidelines or, or people that, you know, interact with some of you all. Who knows? Who knows? And I think Jesus took this approach too. Of course, he is God and he is omniscient and, you know, how does the eternal mind and the, how does the eternal mind and the human mind work together? That's for another time. But he approaches, in John 4, he approaches a Samaritan woman who has a very euphemistically lively past. And that's who, it is her who comes to faith, and it's actually her that the disciples come with like food and complaints. She comes back with an entire town. You, I mean, this is how God works sometimes. Like, you just can't anticipate him. Spread the seed indiscriminately. You don't know what soil you're giving. All right, last question. Huh, not doing bad. Why is Ananias used here? So the last question is pretty fundamental. If Jesus Christ himself appears to Saul, why doesn't he just sort of finish the job? In response, there are a few observations to note in the text, and let me list a few, a few of them that we've seen in Acts and that you're going to continue to see. There is a general pattern of laying on of hands in Acts. Um, in in uh, Acts chapter 2, we saw the Pentecost, which is really more of an, uh, a Jewish Pentecost, in Acts chapter 8, we see a Samaritan Pentecost. Here we see Saul's Pentecost of sorts, a laying on of hands. And then in chapter 10, with Cornelius and his, and his family, we are going to see finally a Gentile Pentecost of sorts. So that's going on. So there, there is a pattern going on here that can answer the question, why didn't Jesus just come and you know, give him sight. It's interesting to note this is the first non-apostle to lay his hands on and to give the Spirit in his fullness. Right? This is the first non-apostle to lay his hands on someone and to give the Spirit in his fullness. I say in fullness because you can't, um, you can't actually convert or be a believer in the Old Testament period or in the Gospel period unless the Holy Spirit was indwelling you. The Pentecost actually means that they indwell you to an even greater extent than he had before, right? We can talk about that later. Um, yeah, so anyway, the theological principle. All conversions, not just Paul's, involve confrontation and conquering, and you can never tell who, why, and when God has someone respond. And it appears... And it appears humans are always involved in the process. 
In other words, humans are always in the, involved in the conversions of others, so it seems. And there seems to be good biblical evidence of this. At the birth of Christ, yeah, we have angels, but who does he send? Who do they send? Shepherds. We have the resurrection. Of course, there's angels again, but who, does he, who is sent? The women. In the Old Testament, God uses prophets. And above, in the Romans passage, in Romans chapter 10, Paul does not say, let's pray that the angels go and get the good news out. They're really fast, and they're much more impressive when they talk. He doesn't. This is, again, this is why we spend so much more money on admissions. We try, to keep, we try to keep pace in our budgets here in missions. So the application. There are a variety of different ways to witness, right? Living a godly life, being a good, being a good person, having a good disposition, a fair disposition at work, at the library, at the grocery store, wherever you go. Um, but the hardest one for most of us is verbal. It's easy for me because I, like, this is, this is what I truck in. Like, I, I, I teach theology. I, I, I'm kind of like in a little bit of a Christian bubble throughout my week, you know? It's just, it's on the tip of my tongue all the time. But inviting people to church is a great start. Right? I mean, how, how great to get them in front of some of your Sunday school teachers, in front of Craig, in front of our worship leaders. Man, that's awesome. It'll be clear. Inviting people to base camp. We had 20 kids, 20 kids that are not from this church. It's awesome. Availing of yourself of opportunities to write and share your testimony in church. Right? You know, working on transitions. There's a lot of wonderful things that are done at this church. Um, one of the things is adoptions. That, that has been much celebrated in this church, and we're very thankful for all of those people in this church that have, have given a large part of their lives to that. I mean, those are great, great transitions. People are interested. It's kind of, I mean, I brag, I brag on you all the time, and it's easy to sort of pivot from there. Yeah, because we value the image of God in people. We also needed adoption. I needed adoption. But it's not about winning an argument. We, we should have reasons for our belief. We ought to have reasons. But you won't ever make anyone surrender. It's Jesus that makes people surrender. You get the word out. You can have debates. I, I have debates and I have fun. And, but it's, you know, we hug and we walk separate ways after we're done. But... You're not going to conquer anyone. So I have this other little conclusion. So you have the conversation. God will do the hard work of the confrontation and conquering. And that's what we're called to. And that's just building on of what Craig said last week. God gave us curriculum. Open our mouths and witness. And again, that can go in a number of different ways. 
We can invite people to church. We can invite people to base camp, etc., etc. But just, I think, people will see the love. We will stumble over ourselves at times, but that's okay. We're all growing in that, or in that regard.